How many of you guys were here since last June? Been around. Can I see your hands? You've been around, you've been at the church since last June? Guess what, guys? I made it. <laughs> this uh, teaching will actually be a little uh, different from the norm. Uh, you know, you'll still have um, biblical roots within the sermon, and but it's been exactly one calendar year since um, my role. Um, as lead pastor, and I was reflecting on this journey. Um, as, as I reflected, I was reminded of uh, several promises that God fulfilled, and one of which will be the focus for today. And so I've entitled today's specific um, teaching. I know we've been going through the fivefold, but I wanted to just interject this. Um, so the title for today is Remember These Stones. Remember these stones. Um, this sermon can be considered a response to the sermon series that I preached uh, last year, June, around this time. You guys probably don't remember it, but it's titled Next, The Journey from Here to There. Um, that was the sermon that we did. And we have uh, his little graphics you guys can jog your memory a little bit. There is no... So we understood what here meant because we were at the beginning of our journey, but we never established what there meant in our journey. We knew where we were, it's the beginning of our journey. But one thing is certain is that we don't always understand the sovereign plan of God. We submit our plans and we serve God's purpose. Um, now, let me also say that since I'm talking about not knowing God's plan, that I'm not here to resign, okay? So let's just make that clear. Um, but I've constantly said to us that God has given uh, me a vision to lead this church, and that's, and that's the vision that I present to the church board. But there can be several ideas and thoughts about how we execute um, the vision, but there's still one vision that we pray into. Um, the vision that we have here is obviously not for everyone, and we're 100% okay with that. Um, we'll love you no matter where you are. In fact, this morning, I was in Fremont celebrating with one of our former members um, who was being baptized at his new church, and I got a chance to celebrate with him and saw a few other um, former members got a chance to meet um, um, the, the, new, the pastor out there. So this is God's church. Um, I might not always, I should say we might not always um, be comfortable with how he chooses to build it, but we always submit to him. Um, the reason I speak so confidently before you is that you won't find me pastoring this church one day beyond my God-given assignment. You know, this, even if someone begged me to stay, if God says it's done, that's it. That's how I've always lived my life. And I don't feel pressured to meet man's expectation. I don't feel pressured to move at any other pace except God's pace. We serve a sovereign God, and we all submit 
to his plans and we follow his lead. We also have a great church board that holds us all accountable to God's sovereign plan. Um, you might be wondering, well, what makes me so confident that God is speaking to me? Because God provides tangible signs along the way to confirm his word. And that's the reason I share things with people around me, especially our church board, so that when things come to pass, there's no doubt that God is leading. Now here's a quote from our sermon series in June, from June 2022, which became the anchoring theme for us this past year. Whether or not you agreed with it, this has been our theme. We must learn to follow the movements of God. And if you remember in that series, we focused on the first three chapters of Joshua and Israel's pursuit of God's promise. Moses was dead and God installed Joshua as this next leader. When Israel responded to Joshua's leadership, they obtained the promise of God. One of the things I love about this story is Joshua 3 and verse 4. God essentially said, follow my lead, follow the Ark of the Covenant. And then look at what he says, Joshua 3 verse 4, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. See, none of us knew that what we started a year ago would lead to this moment. But here we are. Uh, we've been holding on to the belief that God has a plan for this church, and he does. When Israel entered the promised land, um, specifically Gilgal, God instructed them to gather 12 stones to serve as a memorial um, of what he had done. Um, we're going to read Joshua 4, verses 1 to 4, and verses 20 to 24. And it says this, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. Verse 20. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Notice the text that we read. The purpose of the memorial was not a moment of reflection concerning the hardship that Israel endured in Egypt. The memorial was not even about the good times that they experienced in the wilderness. The 12 stones were to commemorate the moment that God fulfilled his promise. Why? Verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. 
Um, Israel's pursuit of God's promise is one of the climactic events in biblical history. Um, the Israelites had waited 40 years, but now the time had come. It is an emotional moment as they cross the Jordan River. The river was humanly uncrossable, but God stepped in miraculously. Now behind them, they were leaving the wearisome decades of wandering in the wilderness and the tragic memories of countless funerals for an entire generation of people who refused to trust God's promises. A new and welcoming chapter opens before them, Canaan. There's a land richer than before, more fruitful than their hopes, and more beautiful than their imagination. This was God's promise to the Israelites. This had, you know, had to be this surreal moment to finally stand in Canaan, not simply hearing about it, but standing there. It's like unlocking the door to your first apartment or home. Do you guys remember that moment? Your first apartment. You know, you've envisioned it. You planned for it. You imagine what it would be like to turn the keys to the place that you thought about, this joy. Now it's yours. Israel's joy was further magnified by recent events. What recent events? Because when they came to this Jordan River, it was flooded. They couldn't cross. But God intervened, performing a miracle that paralleled the miracle of the Exodus from Egypt. God rolled back the waters of the Jordan River, just as he had done with the Red Sea. See, God, you know, did this. It meant that what he said through Moses years before, that nothing was going to stop the fulfillment of his promise. Just as we often do, we thank God for what he's done. We might sing some songs and we worship to thank God for what he's doing. But the story wasn't over. After Israel crossed Jordan, God gave Joshua some very specific instructions. Before you settle in this new place, here's what I want you to do. Um, this is something that, you know, we've, you know, in my culture, and maybe yours, but I can speak for me, when we get to a new place, we like to, you know, pray through the place. Before we do anything else, we're praying because we're, you know, sanctifying this and we're dedicating this place to God. God said, before you settle into this promised land, I want you to get 12 men from the tribe and I want you to tell them to go back to Jordan and get 12 stones. They were to bring back 12 stones. Stones that at one point were buried by water, unreachable, covered by something that challenged their faith. How are we going to cross this? How are we going to attain the promise that God has for us? Because all we see is water, insurmountable. But now these stones were divinely accessible. Twelve men hoisted these heavy stones to their shoulder from Jordan, and they piled these stones together in the promised land as commanded by God. The stones were stacked as a sign, an unmistakable marker that this very place, God demonstrated his power to overcome any obstacle 
to him fulfilling his promise. See, stones don't naturally stack themselves. So there would come a day, as we read, when Israel's children would ask for an explanation. Why do you have these stones stacked up? Why do you have these 12 stones? And here's the answer God wants this next generation to know. Tell them to remember these stones. Tell them the story, God says in verse 7. Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the, of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then verse 23 and 24 added that, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. See, this is what happens when the impossible meets the promises of God. See, the outcome when the unlikely faces this glorious riches of God in Christ Jesus. See, there's going to be a story that you'll share for those who will come into the church um, for the very first time because you've been here. Now, you might be wondering, why am I telling you this story? Well, today's sermon serves as a moment to commemorate the fulfillment of something that God promised. We are at our crossing point. God had planted something in our hearts by the leading of the Holy Spirit, but also our growing need for intentional community as a church. We always talk about intentional community. Well, God responded miraculously this past week because beginning August 1st, all emerged church-related events will be held at Hillegas. Sunday services, Wednesday, Friday, everything we do as a church will be in one location. Now, I know you guys are quiet, but I'm excited for that. You know, I know you guys have been listening. See, I had a meeting with um, Pastor Max, who pastors this church that we're renting. And if you don't know me by now, you'll know that I value relationships. I wanted to make sure that we were transitioning well. So we, you know, we met Friday. Now, I've lived my life long enough to know that I cannot call myself a follower of Christ while holding any you know, grudges or anything in my heart. We didn't have any grudge, obviously, but I want to make sure that we still left in a good place. Anyway, Pastor Max and I, we were reflecting on the journey of our individual ministry, but also my journey of leading Emerge this past calendar year. See, our story as a church goes back to last year. And maybe when you hear the story, you'll celebrate the fact that we'll be in one location. But we had a prayer campaign where we divided each ministry into one of 12 gates, Nehemiah. You guys remember that? Yes, maybe. We also did some fasting around that. Yes? See, our ministry leaders, you know, gave prayer points for us to pray, and we prayed 15 minutes each day for three months, for those who made it to three months. 
And one of the prayer points was that God would provide a more permanent facility. Actually, can you look in my bag? I brought a copy of the prayer request. Just wanted to read something on there. I think it's between my laptop. I was like, where's one of the cards? And I printed it out because I wanted to, to, to read um, that. It's because, you know, again, this is a moment of remembrance. She's like, you're going to have me come on the stage. Why didn't you remember it? I forgot it. Thank you. <laughs> this was actually what came in from administration and finance. And I'm going to read all four uh, prayer points that, that was on here, that was given to us. And the first one said that was that members would have a healthy understanding of their financial stewardship and respond with generosity. That was the first prayer point that they gave. The second was that our church will maintain financial integrity and stability in handling the church's finances. The third one says that the financial burden will be lifted from the members of our church so they can worship freely. In other words, people will have jobs. The fourth one said that God would provide the resource and opportunity for us to acquire a permanent church facility. So these are things that came in that we were praying for last year. Now, the very first campaign, of course, there was a glimpse of hope on the very first day, which is how we got the community space. The very first day we prayed, the um, we had the, the uh, community space. Then after that, we met with a realtor, and we were looking for a church building, and the first one that we saw, it was just too far from our, you know, theological beliefs, and then we saw another facility that didn't fit the requirements, so we went back to the drawing board and we restarted the uh, search process. Now, three months ago, there, you know, there were some changes to our Telegraph um, office location, um, and we needed to make a change. I remembered the initial facility that we toured with the realtor last year. It wasn't suitable for Sunday services, but perfect for our offices. That facility became our new location, which is where we have our offices, going from having just a few rooms to having a lot of rooms. Each day it feels like a take your family to work day. I've been bringing my family every day and saying, let's make things and driving around the bay, you know, getting furniture. You know, you got to furnish the rooms. See, I'm motivated by the fulfillment of God's promise and the future that's ahead. But remember what I've been saying in recent weeks, that the focus for our church in this season is people. But if we simply moved our office from Telegraph to Hillegas, the same challenge we experience now would remain. Coming in here and have a few hours, then we have to rush out, and then having, you know, so it just wouldn't work, right? So now we notice how God was strategic, providing us the opportunity to relocate our offices, afforded an opportunity for us to move our Sunday services in the same location. See, our new worship space has never been rented before. 
have to understand that. So it would never be on the market. You know, there's no plans to rent the space, which means we wouldn't have access to that space. You might say, well, why didn't I simply send an email to share that we're moving to Hillegas? You know, why share this through a sermon? So here's what I learned. See, God doesn't need our help in fulfilling his promises for our lives. And God doesn't need our approval to fulfill his promises. But just like Israel, there's a corporate response that's required when God fulfills his promise. The moment you enter Canaan, the moment you partake of God's promise, you have an obligation to respond. See, our future is rooted in our obedience to God, not in the experiences from the past. See, God says to Israel to commemorate this moment. See, the same is true for us. So even if you haven't been a part of this journey in praying for us, and even if you didn't believe this would happen, I want you to remember these, um, these stones. Remember why God is providing this opportunity. See, when God provided this space for us, then he opened this other door. But we first had to make the first step to say, okay, God, we're trusting that you're moving us in this direction. And as we responded, God opened the door. For the rest of today's teaching, I'm going to quickly sh share some quick thoughts from Acts chapter 2. What we learn in Acts 2 is that God's church is not based on our fully customizable preferences. Now, how many saved Christians we have with an iPhone? iPhones? Like, no, Android, Google. Imagine having an iChurch, just like you do with your iPhone. Everything is customizable to our preferences, you know, the worship styles, leadership structure, the decor, the church size. You know, get a chance to customize these things, but that's not God's church. So God's church has lots of messy people coming together to follow Jesus. See, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47 introduces us to the establishment of God's church. We don't see a fully customizable iChurch. So we see a community of believers doing church together. See, in this next season of our church, I want us to remember how God brought the early church together and learn the truths and principles that will make us an effective church. Imagine you know, being in that room with Peter who has a temper. I mean, locked in for 10 days. Don't say the wrong thing. But we find Peter preaching on the first day. Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The first thing or the first principle we learn from this is that we are grounded in God's word. See, last week we opened uh, Acts 2 verses 1 to 13 with Pentecost. I just mentioned Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 people repented and believed in Jesus. He preached a sermon in Acts 2, verses 14 to 41. The same Peter who we know would have had a temper, the same Peter who we see denying Christ, the same Peter we're seeing being in a room with 120 people. And now on the first day when the, when the Holy Spirit showed up, he's preaching a sermon and 3,000 people got saved. I said it earlier, the church is filled with messy people, flawed people coming together to follow Jesus. See, those who stayed behind in Jerusalem, they didn't return to their homes in the countryside. When they got saved, they stayed behind and they formed the first church. Uh, many of you graduated and you chose to stay here. Others relocated from the area and that now you're here to be a part of our story at Emerge. See, the effectiveness of any church starts with gathering around God's word. Now, when a statement like this is made, it gives the illusion that we need more Bible studies. But notice what the people were doing. Acts 2, 42, in that first part, says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It wasn't that they needed more Bible studies. There was something specific that was needed for the church to be unified. See, I'm teaching Tyler how to drive. So the other morning, he was with me about 3 a.m. And now I said, Tyler, you have to be fully rested to drive because driving in the daytime is not like driving in the nighttime. It's like, I know. I said, actually, you don't know because you've never done it before. You might have heard about it, but you don't know. When God was taking Israel across Jordan, he said, follow me because you don't know where I'm taking you. When Jesus was leaving earth, he told the disciples to wait in the upper room. They didn't know what to expect. But the power of God came in that room and empowered them to share the mighty works of God. See, the disciples didn't have copies of the New Testament, but they have the Old Testament. See, the Hebrew Scriptures, or what they would have called the Tanakh, or the Torah, written from Genesis through Deuteronomy, or the Nevim, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is the historic and poetic books. The apostles would have spent time talking about Jesus, reminding the people of his teachings and showing them how the Tanakh points to Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Imagine if each apostle felt it was more beneficial to teach something else because that's what they were sensing. Imagine if they said, I know we could be talking more about this teaching of Jesus, but I feel like we should share something from 
the Tanakh or the Torah or the Navim or the Ketuvim. Think about what would have happened. Imagine if the Apostle Paul said, I know that I've been empowered to share the gospel to the Gentiles, but I feel like I should be sharing to the Jews instead. They're all gathered in the upper room, much like we're gathered today. But when they went home, their teachings were still in alignment. If you want to know how unified a church is, if you want to know how unified a church is in their teaching, poll each leader individually and compare the findings. Everyone will tell you what they believe. Compare the findings. And I know because I've had the conversations but everyone is, is sharing what they believe we are. If you want to know how unified, poll every leader and then compare the findings. The sermons I teach on Sundays are not the same thing that I study for personal growth. See, there has to be something that brings us together as a church. We're not brought together because we're all from the same country. We're not here together because we speak the same language. You know, usually around summer months, we see a lot of uh, exchange students coming in, speaking different languages. And they're coming because the body of Christ is unified. We're brought together to center our lives on God's word, but there's something specific in which he has to say to us. And that's what we need to know. That specific thing has to be our anchor. The second thing is that we're brought together because of Christ and his word. When we gather as Christians, it's not about customizing things to our preferences. In Joshua 4, God told the people what they should remember. In Acts 2, the church devoted themselves to something that was unified. It was through the unity that caused God to add daily to his church. Every day, people were getting saved because the church was unified on what to teach. So when we gather around God's word, we're gathering around Christ and the gospel. We're coming to learn about him, to see how the scripture point to him. We confess our sins to him. We receive his grace in our lives. We remember his sacrifice on the cross. We celebrate his resurrection and ascension. But most importantly, we must learn what God is saying to his church through his word. When we gather corporately around God's word, it means that we're separating our personal preferences for a corporate, devoted experience. We must ground ourselves in God's word, and we must be unified in what God's word is saying to his church. Number three is that we must be devoted to doing life together. Christianity is not just a Bible study. It's a lifestyle. In Acts 2.42, and the second part, it says, and they devoted themselves to fellowship. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together. We, the people, are the church, people doing life together. See, we look at Acts 2, 45 to 46, people were willing to sell property and possessions to help each other and they were spending time together in daily worship. Again, I'm not advocating that we should 
increase our worship time to worship every day, come together every day, although that would be nice, there's something that I've noticed that continues to impact our global church. There is a pretense of worship that leads to a pretense of community that leads to the decline of the church. For example, we invite the entire church to weekly prayer, but only 10 people out of 100 shows up. Then we make ourselves comfortable that these 10 are the ones that God wants to be there. And since we're comfortable, those who are absent no longer sees the value or the importance of being there because we're comfortable. And then, you know, we have a ministry event. Michael and Elliot have a men's event. And then that number increases to 30. And we say it was a success because it's three times the number that used to gather to pray. As our comfort level continues with those 30, eventually we lose curiosity or desire to reach the 70 because the 30 gives the illusion or the pretense of stability and community. We have community, so what's the point? Oh, there's no need to reach the 70. According to scriptures, doing life together is an important aspect to the salvation of souls. Not just for us, but the actual salvation of souls. It is through our devotion to a shared lifestyle that we learn how to care for each other. Then we'll be willing to sacrifice for each other or demonstrate generously to each other. We come together and we learn how to love God's people. The common reason we often give for failing to go the extra mile for forging these authentic relationships is, I don't have enough time. But Jesus invites us to give our most valuable commodity to each other, time. One of the reasons we use intentional community in our language is that we already do fellowship when we gather for worship or large groups or connect groups. We, when we have these Bible studies or we go on these different hikes, that's already a fellowship. But true fellowship or really doing life together is seeing each other on the good days and the bad days. Some of you have never seen me, you know, on a bad day. Don't worry, there's not much to see. This is how I am. You know, I was looking, my wife saw, she, was, she sent me some videos of these babies that were, you know, that were falling asleep. You know, some were eating and stuff, and one of the babies that they touched was like sleeping pregnant, like with a big smile. And she said, I can imagine that's how you were as a baby. Because if you wake me up at 2 in the morning, I go and say, hey, how you doing? Yes, that's exactly how it is in my house. You're like, was he actually sleeping? I don't really know. If he's awake, he sounds the same. If you wake him up, he sounds the same. But life together has wonderful times of encouragement and joy. But it also has bruises and frustrations. But we stick it out because we love Jesus and we love each other. Sharing meals and partaking communion, which we're going to do at the end. See, food was a big deal back then. Big deal for the early church. 
You know, we see it in Acts 2.42. says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And 46 says, talk about it again, breaking bread in their homes. See, the early church would eat together and celebrate the Lord's Supper as part of that meal. It was a continued time of fellowship focused on Christ, you know, accompanied by food. Food is such an important part of doing life together. Imagine if we challenged ourselves to invite a different person or a group of people to our homes each week, especially in the summer months when everyone's traveling. Imagine if you look around and say, oh, why don't we have a cup of coffee, you know, together? What if you say, you know, twice a month I'm going to find a different person just to share a meal with? Imagine how much we'd forge authentic community. See, that's what the early church did. They're always doing life together. The fourth principle is that an effective church prays together. See, Acts 2, 42 and 47 says, and they devoted themselves to prayers. And 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, in Acts, we find the early church praying and worshiping God together. Obviously, we can pray individually. I do it every day. But nothing we obtained in this church was the result of an individual prayer. Talk about the community space. There are witnesses inside this room when we were sitting there and said, let's pray about the space, and it happened the next day. There are people in this room who witnessed me going out to look at different places that didn't work out. But there are also some in this room that were there when I went and said, this is it. The effectiveness of this church will not be the result of an individual prayer. See, we've tried different approaches to prayer gatherings that haven't worked for different reasons. But one of the things I'm looking forward to in our new location is the possibility of moving corporate prayer to Sunday mornings as a part of our weekly rhythm. Imagine if we just gathered there and praying and then going into church service. Imagine what God will do. See, we will never stop providing opportunities for us to pray as a church. We just try. We'll try on a Sunday. Don't work on a Sunday. We're going to try on a Thursday. But we're going to try something because we have to be a praying church. Everything we attain came through prayer. Not one person, but the church praying. Prayer is the engine to what God is doing and will do in this church. What is the outcome of applying these principles from Acts 2? The result is that we grow. Not growing numerically because we like this, but the, the kingdom is expanding. That's what we saw here. We didn't see them saying, oh, my house church grew to 300, unless you had a really big house. But they were celebrating that as people gathered, um, studying God's word, sharing a meal, praying, people got saved daily. Imagine if God just did a pulse check and say, the effectiveness of every church is people getting saved every day. And if we don't get saved every day, we shut it down. Imagine what would happen, huh? We'd have a lot of churches closing down. 
So we got to make sure that we're praying so that God can add to his church daily. The last verse ends like this. In, the, in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we're going to prepare for communion. As we move forward as a church, you're going to have these constant reminders from our leaders to, comm to commemorate these four things we discussed. We're going to be a church that is grounded in God's word. We're going to remember that we're unified because of Christ and his word, not our preferences. And we're going to be committed to doing life together, not with a select few, but as a church. No more silos. Can we all say that together? No more silos? One, two, three. No more silos. We saw in Scripture that the church did life together and people got saved because there is everything in common. We're also going to be a church that commit to praying together. This is not my plan. This is the order of God and what he desires to see the salvation of souls. We're going to be a praying church. Praying, pray without ceasing. Prayer is the engine. For everything we do, we're going to be rooted in prayer. So that a year later, we can take something like this and say, we prayed that God would do something for us. And here it is. We want to know that we can look and say a year from now that God said he would do something special, and he did. Healing and miracles, we prayed and God responded. So as we get ready for communion, we see in scriptures, in Acts 1 verse 8, it talks about the fact that, that when the day of Pentecost come, that we will receive power. But the power that we were going to receive is not simply about the gifts to exercise in the church. It was power to share the gospel to every nation. When we partake of communion, we're remembering Christ's finished work on the cross. And we're remembering the power that he sent to us so that we can share this good news of the gospel to those who need to hear a good word. So as you are there reflecting in your life, as I've been doing this past year, reflecting on what God has been doing in this church, I'm seeing what he plans to do in the future. I don't always have the answer. But when I look back, I can truly say that God has been with us, demonstrating his mighty works. If you're not a believer, we ask that you abstain from taking communion because we partake in communion by faith. Faith in what Christ has done for us. But you can also make that decision today to accept him in your heart. I'm going to pray a prayer for us. Then I'm going to give you an opportunity to reflect and partake in communion as you choose. Lord, I pray for the one that doesn't have a relationship with you. Pray, God, that you will help them to realize that you send your son, 
Jesus to die on the cross so that we can experience forgiveness of sin. And I pray that in this moment that they will accept you in their lives, God. Pray, God, for all of us here as we reflect in our lives, reflect on the things that we need to do to ensure that this body of Christ is unified to serving you in our actions, in the things that we study, and our lives are centered on you. Help us all to reflect on this. Help us to know that the reason why we're being unified as a church is not for numerical growth in this church, but it's for the expansion of the kingdom so that wherever we go, we'll make an impact. I pray, God, that you'll help us to trust you and serve you. And as we partake of communion, God, we do so remembering the finished work. And we're trusting that you will use us to make a difference wherever we go, wherever we may live, and that people will come to know you as Lord of their lives. We just love you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.